Please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. Acts 15, 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has made related how God first visited the Gentiles to, make, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading the men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us to ha having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Bar Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Donna. Great job. Uh, right before that, I was, I was going to tell Donna, hey, maybe we could leave out some of that. You know, it's 35 verses, and they kind of repeat a little bit. And then I was like, no, it's just, we'll just do the whole thing. So she was a trooper. Thank you for that. Uh, well, welcome to Sojourn. My name's Josh. Uh, I'm uh, the lead pastor here. And uh, good to be with you this morning. Really excited about our text uh, here in Acts 15. Uh, a really important text. 
uh, for Christians to think about and to consider. Obviously, all of God's word is important and bears on our lives. Uh, but, but this text uh, kind of placed right here in the middle of, of the book of Acts uh, is, is so foundational and so important for us. Uh, as we think about mission, we're continuing to think about mission, right? Uh, but we think about the role of doctrine and sound teaching as it relates to mission. You know, all throughout Acts, we've been talking about mission, but over the last few weeks, we, we've been talking explicitly about what God's mission is and, and our role in that. We talked about living on mission each of the last two weeks. We've provided some context and definition and what that ought to look like for our lives. We, we looked at some obstacles to living on mission last week. Uh, and I think that as we're talking so much about mission and so much about how we live out our faith, how we share the good news, uh, I think we can, we can be tempted to, to think that everything is about mission, that that's really all that Christianity is. It's, it's kind of only going out and, and telling people about Jesus and telling people about the gospel and that, that other issues such as doctrine, theology, uh, and, and things like that, Christian living, uh, are, are maybe less important or, or not essential, or, or those, you know, those are kind of side issues. All that really matters is that we're talking about Jesus. Uh, and I think that Acts 15 uh, provides a, a lot of clarity for us uh, into how the early church, and particularly how the apostles and the early church leaders thought about the role of doctrine and thought about the role of sound teaching uh, in how it related to mission. And what we see here is that they thought it was incredibly important. They thought it was essential. They thought it was so important that they conducted the very first, what we call, church council. We'll talk more about that as we go through it here. Uh, because for them, this, this was absolutely, absolutely essential. That, that the mission of God could not go forward if we didn't have right teaching, right doctrine, right thinking about these things. So, so the role of doctrine in our mission, it's absolutely essential. It's absolutely important. Uh, I, I think we're always going to debate uh, exactly right, how much weight to give to all these things. And, and I think so much of it depends on context and time and history and, and place and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but the reality is that, that you know, we can be tempted to think that, that maybe doctrine is not that important, but it's not just, you know, regular Christians like, like maybe you uh, and me, but Christian leaders can think that way. Pastors, theologians can think the, these ways and, and have thought these ways and continue to think these ways uh, and continue to debate the role and the importance of doctrine and so it's important for us to think about it. It's, it's important for us to be able to, to respond to when people say things. You know, I, I encounter this all the time. Uh, I encountered it again this week, okay? A very prominent pastor and author uh, in, in, in America anyway, a guy named Andy Stanley. Many of you will be familiar with him. Uh, Andy can't seem to go more than a few months without saying something really controversial these days. And the most recent thing he said uh, maybe you maybe you read it or heard it uh, was that it really doesn't matter if the scriptures are true. It really doesn't matter if they're without error, as long as the resurrection is true. The resurrection is is what the kind of the foundation of Christianity, and that's at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. The, the rest of it, you know, it is is kind of secondary and and trivial in its importance. Um, and, and look. The resurrection is foundational. It's absolutely essential. You know, we've got Easter coming up here in just a few weeks. We're going to talk about the resurrection. It's, it's absolutely essential. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself says, if the resurrection is not true, we're all wasting our time, okay? We're to be pitied above all people is the way that Paul says it. And so no disagreement there. We have to have the resurrection. It is absolutely essential. Um, but, but is it the case that all we should do is tell people about the resurrection, that, that that's it, that we should just go around and say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, believe in him, and, and that's pretty much it, right? Everything else is just kind of gravy. It's, it's icing, it's extra. Uh, it, and I think that when we read Acts 15, when we read the New Testament, that would be inconsistent with the witness and the testimony of the apostles and, and more importantly, of the Holy Spirit himself. 
Uh, and so then, we're, we're going to be thinking about answering that question. What is the role of doctrine in our mission? Uh, and I think there are three things that our text gives us uh, that kind of shows us and helps us understand how doctrine relates to the mission of God. First of all, it provides certainty. Second of all, it provides context. And third, it provides clarity. All right? We've got a lot of verses today, so we're trying to keep it simple. We've got three Cs, Okay? Certainty, context, clarity. First of all, right doctrine provides certainty for us, certainty in the midst of our mission. Uh, as, as I was, you know, I, I always put a little bit of time and effort in thinking about the points and the words and which ones I'm going to use and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as, I was, as I was looking at the word certainty, uh, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll do is look up definitions and then, like, get the, the thesaurus, I want to say that word right, thesaurus out, okay, uh, and you see synonyms, but you also, it also shows you antonyms, okay, uh, the opposite, and, and the opposite of certainty is confusion, and, and I thought that was interesting because uh, this was a confusing time in the history of the church. This was a really confusing time uh, that, that Christians, Jewish Christians particularly, were, were absolutely divided over how they ought to see and understand Gentiles coming into the church, okay? There, there was a, uh, a sharp disagreement, and that led to a, a large amount of confusion. And, and I thought it was interesting because we live in a very confused time in our own day. Our society is confused about any number of things, and, and increasingly, uh, each day seems to only be more confused. And I think sometimes we can think, well, what's, like, how do we get less confused? How do, what's the antidote to confusion and it is certainty, right? But certainty uh, really comes through truth, or at least certainty that, that's reasonable and the kind of certainty we want to have. Uh, we could be certain about any number of falsehoods, but that's not going to do us any good, right? We want to be certain about truth and about what's right and, and good. Uh, and that's, I think, where, where doctrine helps us out. So if we go back to the first century and we think about that context and what's going on here, uh, there was a great deal of confusion, as I mentioned, about Gentiles and how they related to uh, this new thing that God was doing, right, Christianity, and, and particularly how Gentiles needed to relate to the Jewish law. Uh, we've talked about this issue before, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of give us a quick uh, flyover of the highlights. Up to this point in history, Gentiles could have been welcomed into the family of God. They could have been brought into God's people, but only on the condition that they lived like God's people, that they looked like God's people, that they observed the Jewish law. And more specifically, this meant that being circumcised, among other important lifestyle changes, was, was essential. It was not negotiable. Uh, as we've talked about before, circumcision uh, itself was the external sign of the covenant. It was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, okay? And it was, it was kind of a... It was kind of a summary statement or a summary idea for observing the whole Mosaic law. Uh, you see this in verse 5. Luke says it this way, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So you see those two ideas linked together, right? Circumcision as the sign that you are going to keep and be faithful and obey, follow the law of Moses. Uh, another thing that's important to see there is that Luke refers to this group as believers, okay? He doesn't refer to them as non-believers. He doesn't refer to them as, well, the, these are the Pharisees who rejected. No, th these are people who believed Jesus was the Messiah. These are people who had embraced that truth. So these, these are people who were agreeing with, and they're identifying with the early church, but they're saying, no, 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 no. They, yes, Jesus, yes, grace, yes, faith in him, but also the law, right? Also the law, uh, because that's the way it had always been. But uh, what's clear, and we've seen this as we've read through the book of Acts, God was clearly doing something different, something new. There was a new thing happening that, that we call it the new covenant. Uh, we've seen evidence of this already, just a few things that I want to remind us of that we've seen. Uh, Peter's vision, right, before he meets with Cornelius, when he's, he's up on the roof, he's praying, and he sees all the unclean animals before him. 
and he hears the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, by no means. I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. I'm not going to start now. And God responds and he says, do not call unclean what I have said is clean. And so we we have this this absolute transformative moment. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, And then following that, we're introduced to Cornelius, the the man himself, right? The first true kind of Gentile convert where, where God uses that vision to set the stage for Peter. He travels to go meet Cornelius. He preaches the good news to him. Cornelius, his household, they believe. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit falls and they begin speaking in tongues. And what, what Peter and the other believers who are with him realize is, is, my goodness, God is giving his spirit to the Gentiles in the same way he's given them to us. And they haven't been circumcised yet. They, they haven't taken like the, the oath of, of loyalty to the Jewish law. They haven't done any of that stuff yet. But they still have the Holy Spirit. And so, they, look, no doubt they were confused by that. They're still working out what it all meant, but it was clear what God was doing. And then we have, in addition to what Peter has seen, we have Paul and Barnabas's experiences as they go on this first missionary journey. And the same thing is happening, that as they preach the gospel and Gentiles put their faith in Christ, they're receiving the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders are being done, speaking in tongues, and, and it's clear that the very same things that God was doing, starting in Jerusalem with the Jews, he's now doing with the Gentiles. And none of them are circumcised. None of them are, are observing the Jewish law the way, the way that, that any of those Jewish believers were doing. And, and so then, uh, it's created, right, this, this point of conflict about what do we do about this. Now, as I've set it all up, I want to I raise this question that some of you might be thinking, which is, what's the big deal? Is this really a big deal? Couldn't, couldn't they have compromised couldn't they have found a middle way? Like, did they, did they have to have a, a council? That sounds so formal and so official, right? Did they have to declare that one side was right and one side is wrong? That, that's certainly not in the spirit of our day, right? Compromise and, and, and kind of finding a way that everyone can, can be happy. And, and certainly, you know, when, when we talk about your truth and my truth and all that, right? Well, well can't we just find a way to, to make everyone happy here? Well, in a, in a word, no, no. There was not a middle way. Why not? Well, because these two ideas, they, they contradicted each other. They contradicted each other. Uh, because essentially the, the argument went something like this. That, that these Jewish believers were saying that salvation was by grace and works. Okay? By grace and by keeping the law, the law of Moses. Okay? That's how you were saved. Okay? Remember, here's what they said, verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Back in verse 1, Luke says it this way. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you, see that, cannot be saved. Cannot. Okay? So that's one position. Salvation only comes, yes, through Jesus, but through the law. You have to keep the law. So it's Grace and works. Whereas what the apostles are saying is that we're saved by grace alone. No works other than the work of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, and so what that, what that means is that there was no way for both of those things to be correct. One had to be right. One had to be wrong. And, and therefore, a compromise wasn't possible. And, and both sides realized that. Both sides realized, hey, we can't both be right here. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. Either we're saved by grace alone or we're saved by grace and works. Uh, a couple of things, a couple of implications uh, of all this that I want to point out. One is that Christianity is ultimately about truth. And, and not just truth in general, but, but the truth. Christians believe that there is truth in the world that, and that it's discoverable and that it's knowable, that we, we can find out what the truth is and we can know what the truth is because truth comes from God himself, right? It comes from God himself primarily as revealed in his word. And therefore, we believe that truth is, is knowable and that we can 
We can have the truth. We can know the truth. Uh, we also believe in the way that God has created and, and designed the world in the idea of logical consistency, okay? That when we, when we discover what is true and we find something that contradicts it, then, then by definition, by nature, the, the contradiction is, is untrue. It's, it's a falsehood. It cannot be true. That's what we mean by logical consistency. So uh, the example that I always like to use is, is gravity, okay? If we think about gravity, if, if gravity is true for us right now in this space, well, well guess what? <laughs> Anywhere else you are on the earth, it's also true. It, it doesn't matter what culture you're from or what language you speak or what your economic status is or your education level or what time in history you were born. It, it doesn't matter. Every single person who's ever lived, when they jumped up, guess what happened? <whistles> Came back down. Okay? Why? Because we want it to be so? Because we like it to be so? Because life makes more sense when it's consistent? No, 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 no. Because it's true. It's true. It just is true. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you start conspiracy theories online about how gravity is just a farce, it, it doesn't, none of that really matters. It's just true. It just is. Now, when we, when we think about scientific truths, those, those are a little easier for us to understand when it comes to moral truth. We have a little more problem with that in our, in our own day and age. And yet, as Christians, what we believe is that anything that comes from God is true because he is, by definition, truth. Okay? He is truth. It's bound up in his character. And, and here's, here's the end of that, is that if Christianity is true, then all other moral and religious claims that contradict it are, by definition, wrong. They, they're wrong. And, and that is why this issue is ultimately so important. Someone was right and someone was wrong, and literally salvation was at stake. So then, as we think about how the role of doctrine relates to mission. Well, sound doctrine provides certainty for us about what is true and what is not true. As I mentioned, we live in a confusing time, and, and our world desperately needs truth, right? If, if we're ever gonna see certainty and clarity brought to this time, right, it's gonna happen through truth. It's gonna happen through, through a foundation of what's true. Uh, and, and that means that our world desperately needs Christians who can speak the truth and who can speak it, I, I would add, in, in ways that are loving, compelling, and, and winsome, okay? Loving, we're commanded to speak the truth in love, meaning that, that our speaking of the truth comes from a love of other people, not just from a desire to be right or to, a desire to show how much we know or how smart we are or any of, anything like that. So we speak it in love. I, I think we do it in a, in a compelling way. That's what we see all through the book of Acts, that that Paul and the other apostles are speaking in compelling ways. Right? They, are, they are compelling people uh, in the way, that they, the way that they spoke. And then I added this last one, winsome. Uh, you know, Christians actually disagree about this. Some people think it doesn't really matter if we're winsome. It doesn't really matter how we come across as long as we just speak the truth. Um, again, I think that's so inconsistent with the witness of Scripture. I, I, anyway, it's frustrating to me. We don't have time to get into it all. Um, but but I, I, think we, I think we need... Again, I think that goes right in line with being compelling and out of a love and a care for other people that we would try to speak to them, yes, with the truth, but in ways that are compelling and that, that would captivate them. So, uh, all that, doctrine provides certainty for us. The, the second thing that I want us to see uh, is that doctrine provides a context for mission. Right doctrine, right teaching provides a context for mission. And by context here, I, I mean a historical context. Um, we are often prisoners of the moment. We're unable or unwilling to see beyond the here and now. Everything kind of has this very immediate focus, okay? Uh, and for some of us, immediate might mean like literally right now, today, in the next 30 minutes. For some of us, immediate, you know, might mean a month, it might mean a year, it might even mean our lifetime. Uh, but the reality is that the context of human history spans much, much more and further than that. And, and, and that sound doctrine not only gives us the truth of what God has revealed to us, but it also tells a story. It's a story of how God's people have wrestled and struggled with difficult arguments and ideas in the past. 
how God's people have worked through false teaching in the past. Uh, And so then, as we move now a little more into the specific text, we come to what we call the Jerusalem Council. Many of you in your Bibles, uh, before chapter 15, that's probably the the little heading that's there, the Jerusalem Council, okay? Uh, The point is that the apostles, and we're told elders, I assume that means elders of the church in Jerusalem, these early church leaders are all gathered together and they're there to argue and to debate, in, in the good sense of the words, uh, what was before, right? Are we saved by grace alone, or are we saved by grace and works, namely, following the Mosaic law? Uh, and, and so they gather together, uh, and, and here's the way Luke says it. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stands up. We'll get to what Peter said in just a minute. But, but Luke kind of sets the scene for us there. They're all together, and there's a debate, okay? There's a, there is a, a back and forth where you've got uh, the group that, that Luke identifies with the Pharisees, okay? So we're familiar with Pharisees. Uh, so so you, in, it makes sense that they're a little more conservative, a little more traditional, uh, not as open to a new way of doing things, right? So, so that group is standing up, and they're making their case. And then you have, you have others who are standing up and making their case, and, and what ends up being decisive, I think, in the way Luke unfolds this is, is what happens from verse 7 on. There's, there's four men uh, who are going to stand up uh, and make the case that is ultimately going to win the day. Okay, Paul, I, I'm sorry, Peter is first, and then we have Paul and Barnabas, and then we end with James. And by the way, we, we just saw a couple of weeks ago that, that James, the brother of John, one of the disciples, uh, of course, was murdered by Herod. And so this is, this is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who, who wrote uh, the, the book of James in the New Testament. And, and essentially, history tells us that once Peter left Jerusalem, James steps in and becomes the kind of the, the main figure there in the Jerusalem church. So, so these are the four men who stand up and make the case that's going to, to win the day. And, and I just want to walk us through briefly their argument, what, what it was that they said that was so persuasive uh, as they helped the early church think through these issues. So first of all, we have Peter who gets up. Um, and so we'll pick it up there in verse 7. Here's what Peter says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So, I, I think Peter makes four Brief points uh, there uh, that are very instructive for us. Uh, the first thing he says is that this was God's doing, right? God is the one who initiated this. So there in verse 7, you know that in the early days, God made a choice, okay? So he says, this is, this is not the idea that I had. It's not the idea that Paul had. It's not the idea that James had. This was God's choice. He is the one who said, we need to go to the Gentiles. We need to take the message to them. So this was, this was God's doing. He initiated. The next thing he says is that God gave him his spirit. In the same way that he was giving the Holy Spirit to us, he gave his spirit to them. We've seen that happen now repeatedly. The next thing he says, he, he kind of moves in a different direction here. In verse 10, where he, he, he puts it back on him and he says, he, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, he says, why are we saying they need to keep the law when we have never done it? Why would we ever insist on doing something none of us can do? Okay? And, and, and those of you who are, who are familiar with particularly Paul's writings in the New Testament, Paul is gonna write extensively uh, on... Uh, on, on, the, on the foolishness of trying to keep the law, on, on what, what a, 
a failure that is, what, what, what an absolutely hopeless path forward that is because of sin, right? Because of sin, even with our best intentions, we cannot do what God has required of us in the law. It just doesn't happen, can't happen. So he says, hey, no one has ever lived besides Jesus and kept the law. Why would we put that on them? Why would we do that? And then he concludes, verse 11, by saying we're saved by grace alone. Now, he doesn't say alone, but that's implied. We believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, he says we're saved the same way. We Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are by grace, okay? Um, and, And then, you know, Go through the Reformation, we had a little more. We've talked about that. By grace through faith in Christ, with alone after each of those. By grace through faith in Christ. Um, if you're wondering, like, where did the Reformers get that? Well, it's from places just like this, that they're reading what Peter said and go, oh, there it is, there it is. By grace through faith in Christ alone, nothing else. So that was, that was Peter. Then, verse 12, you can tell that that had an effect. Luke tells us the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So now we get personal testimony from Paul and Barnabas where they go through. Uh, I, I think Luke doesn't give us all the details of what they said because he's just given us the whole journey. So we already know what happened with them. And then verse 14, or sorry, verse 13, we get James. Uh, and, and James adds to what's been said, but he takes it a different direction with one more kind of key point. So he says it this way, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, by the way, that's, uh, that's Peter, just different word. Simeon is related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. In other words, what James says is, not only was this God's doing, not only has he given him the spirit, not only have we not kept the law, not only are we saved by grace, not only is this consistent with what Paul and Barnabas have experienced, but this is consistent with the Old Testament. And so, at this point, he quotes Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. Something similar is said in Jeremiah 12, verse 15, where what we see is God promising that one day he's gonna bring the Gentiles in, right? One day, God is going to do this. And James, kind of, kind of as, a, as a final piece of the argument, says this, this is consistent with the Old Testament. That, that, that this is not a violation of the Old Testament the way you might be, but it's fulfillment. That, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to be the, the, the place where the law has always been pointing, right? Not that we would keep it perfectly, but we would realize our need because we can't keep it perfectly. Our need for a savior, our need for someone who could keep it perfectly, which is exactly who Jesus is. And so then, the result is that the truth is made clear. The apostles all agree together. And, and, and notice here, we, we, have, we have people who, who are coming from very different backgrounds, very different places. You know, of, of the four men who spoke, Peter's the only one who was one of the original 12. He's the only one who, who walked with Jesus, okay? Then we have Paul and Barnabas. We, we've seen their backgrounds, their journey. We know that, uh, you know, they're, they're their own people. They've had their own story. And then, you know, we've been introduced to James before, but we're kind of seeing him come to the forefront for the first time. And, and he's a little bit of a different story because he's Jesus' brother, but we know that he didn't believe while Jesus walked the earth. It's not until after Jesus was gone that, that James and his siblings come to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And, and so, despite these differences, despite these backgrounds, it's not like they all came from the same place, they agree, clearly agree. Uh, we see a historical precedent set for how the church can handle difficult and conflicting beliefs and teachings, okay? Uh, throughout church history, we, we've seen many church councils gather, some better than others, okay? Um, but there are, there are several that, that the church views as authoritative. Not, not authoritative because people got together and made some choices, but authoritative because of exactly what we see here in Acts 15, because of the way that they had recognized what God has done and the way that they interpreted well the scriptures, the truth that God had revealed to himself, 
Um, and, and so I, this is all incredibly encouraging uh, because I think it shows a couple of things that, that we might not always believe or feel. One is that there is such a thing as truth and that we really can find it, that we really can know truth, what's real, what's good. God has revealed it. We can find it. And that Christians can agree. Amen, right? Christians can agree. And Christians from very different perspectives and backgrounds can come together, particularly on the essential things, on the gospel, on the truth of how we're saved, and agree and say, yes, this is clearly what God has said. Uh, And so we see a context, a historical context that's given to us for how we can, can work through these kinds of issues. So, as we think about that question, how does doctrine relate to our mission? Well, it, it provides certainty in the midst of our confusion. It, it provides a historical context for how to think through these things. And then finally, it provides clarity. It provides clarity. Uh, because sound doctrine gives us clarity not only by showing us what is true and how they work through it, but also by giving us principles for how to think through future issues. And this, man, this is so crucial for us. You know, there is a difference between a, a kind of a hard and fast doctrinal teaching and what I would call a principle of wisdom, okay? Um, the doctrinal truth here, is, as we've seen, is that we're saved by grace alone, not grace plus works. And that issue, not up for debate. It was settled then. The church has had to reaffirm that through the years. We'll continue to have to reaffirm that because our enemy will continue to undermine that. Uh, but, but that truth was settled, that doctrine ironclad. Uh, and yet, what we also see uh, is that in light of this new teaching, there were any number of questions that uh, both Jews and Gentiles were gonna ask and go, well, what does that mean for this? And what does that mean for this? And what does that mean for this? And I mean, there are many questions, and I say that's the way it is with all doctrinal truth, right? That we, we figure out what the doctrine is. It's like, okay, in light of that, here's 350 questions about how it might apply to any number of circumstances. And when it comes to all of, all of those questions, the, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of particulars, okay? The, the doctrinal truth itself is the particular, but what it does give us are, are principles of wisdom that I think we would say generally apply across contexts, across culture, across time and history, uh, and, and that work themselves into the wisdom of God in all these different situations. Um, and so the, the apostles recognized this. They recognized that there were gonna be these questions. Uh, and I think they give two really clear pieces of what I would call these wisdom principles in their instructions to the Gentiles Uh, And we need to see them. Uh, The first principle, so we have two principles here. The first principle is this. We should not make it hard for outsiders to come to faith in Christ. We should not make it hard. Uh, Verse 19. So this is right after James quotes from Amos, and he gives gives a, a therefore, a conclusion. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I really love the way the NIV puts this. Um, it says we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult, okay? And I think it's really important that James said that because if you read throughout the history of the church, we have a really bad habit of making it really hard for new people to come to faith in Christ. We just do. We, we make it so hard sometimes. Um, now, I want to put a caveat here uh, because I think sometimes people can read that and think, well, what that means is make doctrine not important. <laughs> Water down the truth. In other words, the way that we would keep people from coming, the way that we would make it hard is to emphasize truth. And so let's just de-emphasize that and, and we'll just, that'll make it really easy. And I just want us to see, like, that's not at all what's happened here. In, in no way, they're, they're not de-emphasizing the truth. They're emphasizing the truth, okay? They're, they're holding up a high Standard for what God has said and revealed. And, and, in, and in James's mind, that, that's not what makes it difficult, right? That's not the thing that makes it difficult, but, but there are other things that Christians might do that would make it difficult. 
a couple of things that I just want to mention that I think are clearly in view here uh, and that I think are always in view for us. I think one way we can make it difficult is we put too much emphasis on tradition. We, we put too much emphasis on the way things have always been done, whether that's through um, our methods, right, the, the way that we might share the gospel and, and we think about how it's been done in previous generations and we think, well, that's, that's the only way or that's the best way, you know, that's the, or, or what, you know, whatever word you want to use, but it's like, well, well that's the way. And, and the thing is, all of us, all of us are creatures of habit and we all gravitate towards comfort, and we all have, we have ways that we're comfortable with. And when those change, well, guess what? We don't like it. We don't like it, okay? We would all just prefer to do it the same way that we've always done it. Uh, and therefore, when new ways come along, like we're skeptical, and we're like, I don't know about that, you know? I don't know about that. I don't know if that one really works, okay? Uh, Micah and I were having a conversation just this week uh, about that very topic because he was like the you know, 900th person who asked me, have you watched The Chosen yet? And I responded to him the way I do to everyone. No, I haven't. Uh, and it's not because uh, I, I think The Chosen's bad or that it's sinful or anything like that, but I was like, you know, I, I'm not super comfortable with like putting the scripture on the screen when it comes to the life of Jesus. Like, I'm just not. That's, for me, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, I said, but I want to be open, I want to be open-minded to where we are in society, to, to how important video is, and how important film is, and, and, and these things, and I was like, there's no doubt, that impacts people, uh, it impacts people for the kingdom, and so I, I want to say, hey, praise the Lord, even if for me personally, like, that's not my cup of tea, uh, and, and I hope, I hope that's, that's the right attitude, I think that is the right attitude, because I, I want to be open-minded, right, like, I want to be open, not to changing the truth, but to being open to new Ways because I don't want to overemphasize tradition or the way we've always done it and make it harder for people to come to faith. Like, I don't want to do that. I think another way that we can get this wrong is we put too much emphasis on behavioral conformity. Let me say that one again. We put too much emphasis on behavioral conformity. I mean, that's what, that's what these Pharisees were doing, right? They were putting all the emphasis on the behavioral conformity and saying, hey, Awesome that they believe in Jesus. That's great. Now, circumcision and A, B, C, D, you know, just fill in the blanks, right? And if they're not going to do that, well, then they can't really be Christians. Um, we're going to see in just a minute, the apostles were very concerned with how the Gentiles lived. They give some specific instructions. We're going to see that. So this is not saying behavior doesn't matter at all. But, but it is saying that I think we can emphasize it so much, particularly before people put their faith in Christ, that that becomes a real barrier. And, and, and again, we, we take salvation by grace and we make it about works. And we make it about, well, how much of your life are you going to change before you can come to Jesus? And that is not, that, right, that's, that's antithetical to the way Jesus worked. Jesus talked about not sinning, but after they put their faith in him, okay? Uh, so we, we want to be consistent with what we see the apostles doing. So we should not make it hard for outsiders to come to Jesus. The second principle that they give uh, is that how we live still matters. <laughs> how we live still matters, particularly those of us, which again is most, if not all of us, who are Gentiles in the room. We're the new people. We've been grafted in. How we live still matters. So you notice what James says and then what's repeated in the letter that they send to these Gentile churches, they, they give four things that they say, hey, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the whole law. But let me, let us mention four things that we think are actually pretty important, okay? And here are the four things. Again, they're, they're repeated in a couple of places. You see them in verse 20, where James first says it, and then they repeat it in the letter uh, in, uh, in that. And so, uh, let's look at it in verse 20. James says, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, if you're not familiar with the Mosaic Law, those words might sound strange to you. you. You might be like, well, I'm tracking with sexual immorality. The other things, not so much. Uh, what's going on? Uh, the other ones all relate to food, 
okay? And so if, if you know about the Mosaic Law, you know there were a lot of laws that pertain to food uh, and uh, clean and unclean foods and, and food that was unclean, but it could be made clean through purification and, and these kinds of things. Uh, and, and all of this, it's it centered around pagan worship or, or the way that, that worship would have taken place uh, in, in the Roman world, okay? And, and so they're all kind of related to that. And so when he says things polluted by idols, he's talking about food. He's talking about food that would have been sacrificed to idols. Uh, sexual immorality. We've talked before about how the Jews had a very different sexual ethic than the rest of the society at that time, but in particular when it came to worship. So there was all kinds of sexual immorality. It was intertwined with, with worship and, and idolatry back then. And so uh, I think that's, that's one of the chief reasons why this one's mentioned here. And then again, what has been strangled and from food that had blood in it. Right? Again, these, are, these are all food laws. And, and the point, I think, is, is very, very clear. Not so much from this passage, although it's clear enough here, but as, as we read through the rest of the New Testament and we get Paul kind of unpacking these ideas, it, it's essentially to say to the Gentiles, hey, look, Jewish believers would find it absolutely and totally offensive if if they showed up to worship with you and you were doing any of this stuff, if you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, if you're eating with the blood in it or you're participating in any of the sexual immorality of the culture, like all of that, that they could not wrap their minds around it. And so what we're gonna ask you to do is not partake in it. We're gonna ask you to abstain. We're gonna ask you to abstain from those things, okay? And, and, and the point was, okay, is that it's, it's starting, it's laying the foundation for this idea that Paul's going to make clear in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Like, I, I, I because, the, right, because of freedom in Christ, I, I can, <laughs> I can do any number of things. I, I can participate in them, but, but, but the higher law, right, is love of neighbor. And considering the needs of others more important than my own. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to partake in anything my conscience permits, right? Because of my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Here's Paul reflecting on this. 1 Corinthians 9. I'm just going to read it. Verses 20 through 22. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To the outside, or to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. That's Gentiles, by the way. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I, by all means, might save some. Uh, we've talked about this before, but, but for Paul, what was, it, what was absolutely at the center was reaching people with the gospel, right? And so he said, hey, when I'm in a Jewish context, I'm going to live like a Jew, okay, because that's going to gain me a hearing with them when it comes to talking about Jesus. When I'm in a Gentile context, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to live like a Gentile. I'm not, I'm not going to sin, okay, but I can eat pork when I'm with the Gentiles. That's okay. That's okay because I, I want to gain an audience and, and a hearing with them. And, and so Paul's guiding principles were, were the advancement of the gospel and love of neighbor. Right? I mean, that, that was what was driving him. And I think that's what's driving the apostles. It's, it's what ought to drive us. And so not only do we get this, this hard and fast doctrinal truth that we're saved by grace alone, but then we get these, these guiding principles of wisdom that help us see how to navigate all of, all of the, the hairy kind of particular questions that come along with this. And they, they, give, us, they give us such a gift through that. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to I come back around to the doctrinal truth that's settled here, that we're saved by grace alone. So a, a couple of things for us. Uh, th- there are some in the room, undoubtedly, who you're, you're not a Christian, right? You don't identify as a Christian. You're an unbeliever. Um, the good news for you this morning is that salvation is available, and it doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with your performance. It doesn't have anything to do with your ability to keep a certain code of conduct or anything. It's by grace alone, through faith in Christ. Now, that clearly has implications for the rest of your life. I think hopefully you've gathered that this morning. 
Um, but salvation itself is a gift from God, and it's available by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. Uh, to those of us who are Christians, we identify as believers, uh, a simple question for us. As you examine your own life this morning, is it currently in step with the truth of salvation by grace alone? Is it currently in step with that? You know, the, the danger for those of us who are Christians, I think, and I think this is almost universally true, is that the longer we're in the faith, I think the more prone we are to being like the Pharisees. And, and the more it is that, that we get to that place where it becomes less about grace and more about our part, our role, what we do, right? I think that's why Paul says to the Galatians, having begun by grace, are you now being perfected by works? Right, you started in grace, but did we, did we have a little shift at some point? And now it's about the way that we live is somehow that's earning your standing with God? He says, no, it's not. So in our thinking, in our beliefs, in our actions, are we living in a way that's consistent with the gospel? May it be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, and for how you speak to us through it. We thank you for truth that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. What an incredible gift. We thank you so much that that, that was that was made so clear here in Acts 15 uh, and that for so many of us as Gentiles who, who are brought in uh, that we are only under the law of Christ. What a gift. We thank you and praise you for that. God, I pray that our lives would be consistent with the, the doctrinal truths that we claim to believe um, and that, that we would both on the one hand not make it difficult for new people to come to faith in you and then on the other hand, that, that we wouldn't, because of your grace, make, make a mockery of our obedience, uh, but that because of what you've done for us, that we would seek to live lives that are consistent with the gospel, that are considerate of our brothers and sisters who, who may differ with us on some of these particulars, and that we, we would seek to live lives where we love our neighbors as ourselves, both believers and non-believers. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.